0: the brain itself funnily enough can't even really grasp that number the possible permutations of how these neurons can talk to one another we can't even wrap our own brains around it all of our study of ourselves
1: of our brain has to begin
0: with awe (laughs) with just just pure awe
1: in today's episode of talk nerdy to me we're going to be diving into the intersection of science and spirituality the autonomic nervous system why stress isn't actually as bad as you think and one of the most powerful practices you can do right now to support your brain and body Today I'm talking with Kristen Leal, a teacher, lecturer, and body worker who travels the world with her meta-anatomy trainings, passionately sharing about the miracle of the human body and the liberating potential of movement and stillness. Kristen has nearly 30 years of teaching experience under her belt and has graduated thousands of teachers through her own 200- and 300-hour teacher trainings, along with working for in-person and virtual yoga teacher trainings around the world. Kristen is a master at infusing science with poetry and breaking it down into relevant, relatable, bite-sized, and digestible pieces. So I am so excited to share this conversation with you. So in addition to being a brilliant teacher and a phenomenal author, what I did not mention in Kristen's introduction earlier is that she's actually one of the very first people that introduced me to my love of the human brain and nervous system. So Kristen was one of the lead teacher trainers in the very first yoga teacher training that I took 10 years ago in 2013 in New York City. And In addition to me being super excited about you sharing your wisdom with listeners here, Kristen, there's also a piece of me that really, really selfishly is just super stoked to be in the role of a a student with you and get to experience your teaching again. So I'm really excited to have you on here today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to see you again. I can't believe it's been 10 years. I know. It's been wild. <laughs> a lot's happened. A lot's changed. A lot has changed, yeah. Mm-hmm. A whole pandemic, both of us moving into totally different countries. I wanted to start off today by referencing a researcher that you actually reference in your book, Meta Anatomy, and someone that you spoke of, whose work you spoke of, in that teacher training that I took with you all those years ago, which is, V.S. Ramachandran. And for those of you who are listening who don't know who V.S. Ramachandran is, in addition to his name being really, really hard for me to pronounce most of the time uh, without stumbling over, he's also a brilliant neuroscientist at the University of California, San Diego, and actually pulled up a quote from one of his interviews where he says, The human brain is, without any doubt, the most complexly organized form of matter in the universe. The brain is made up of 100 billion nerve cells or neurons, and someone has calculated that the number of possible permutations and combinations of brain activity exceeds the number of elementary particles in the universe. And this gives you some idea of the staggering complexity one is faced with in trying to understand the functions of this mysterious organ. So the question is, how do you even begin? And that was a question that I was encountering when thinking about what I could possibly pick your brain on today. Like, how do we even begin? And I think that the best place to start would honestly be just learning a little bit more about where you're fascination and curiosity and love of the human brain and nervous system and body was initiated. Ramachandran's a, a, um there's a really
0: great TED Talk that he does that I keep rewatching every now and then because I think it begins with awe. It, it, that's where we have to begin. The brain itself, funnily enough, can't even really grasp that number that you mentioned the possible permutations of how these neurons can talk to one another. It's just we can't even wrap our own brains around it. And so I think it has to begin all of our study of ourselves, of our brain has to begin with awe, <laughs> with just just pure awe, right? Um, and I think in many different ways over the years from when I was a kid, it's just been this exploration of, who I am, who we are, whether it's um, studying the muscles and the bones or the organ systems or the brain itself. Um, it's just this fascination, this curiosity of of how, of why, of, um, of what we're made of, why we're here. Um, I think that's just always been intriguing to me. Um, my friend and I used to do, <laughs> I can't I hesitate even mentioning this because it does make me sound like a serial killer. So please just know (laughs) that I'm a very boring person and I'm not a serial killer. And uh, my friend and I, for some reason, we would come across, we would uh, walk through forest or we'd walk through the lands and we'd find animals that had passed away of natural causes (laughs) or other animals. And we would just be really fascinated with them. And we do little autopsies <laughs> and we would try to learn and we would have books and we would try to see like, you know, what organ we were looking at. And um, and so it's always just been like a really, it's just a fascination. And right? I think starting from the physical and then as I, moved through the world, turning more into, you know, wanting to know about my mind or wanting to know about something more subtle about myself or my own experience or others and how we move through this world, you know, why we're here. So I think it's just that it it always starts with just awe and just awe of, of these vehicles that we have and, and this opportunity that we're given.
1: Thank you so much for your willingness to share with us where your beginnings were and also that you're not, yeah, and that you're not a serial killer. I think, you know, something that's always just enraptured me in terms of your teaching is how poetic it always is and how deeply spiritual it is. And I think that that's something that is honestly missing and for, at times, really appropriate reasons within the scientific community, because science needs to be objective. And when you're teaching and you're facilitating, and it sounds like in your own personal experience, there's always been this infusion of so much wonder and mystery and awe. And that's a similar experience that I've had. I remember being you know, in school in my microbiology classes. Years after taking that teacher training with you and learning about how DNA unravels itself and duplicates and then zips itself back up again. And I'm in a room full of, well, honestly, mostly men. There were mostly men in my program who are just vigorously taking notes. And I'm sitting there with tears welling up in my eyes because it's such a freaking miracle what our bodies and our nervous systems are capable of doing and the innate intelligence that I think has to be there in order for us to be here doing what we're doing, having this conversation, functioning in the world, doing autopsies <laughs> on dead creatures. There, There's so much magic in it, for me at least. So I'm curious for you, it sounds like your curiosity was the thing that catalyzed you into studying anatomy a little bit more. When did the more deeply spiritual piece come along? I think when I moved to New
0: York, I was um, 17, I think, when I moved to New York and got introduced to Mukti Yoga uh, School that started talking about these philosophy books, for lack of a better word, this, this kind of study of capital Y yoga, like the big practices of yoga. And uh, and they talked about the energy body and all of these different things that at first being someone who maybe leaned more towards science and the objective nature of things and, and the physical, it introduced me to, to these other ways of experiencing yourself, you know, beyond what I call the meat suit, right? So You know, there's this great quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson, I believe, um, and it says, scientists are trying to take a photo of it. Mystics are trying to feel it. And so we're, we're trying to get to the same place, the study of ourselves, the study of the world around us, the study of our interactions. We're just going about it from either the trying to photograph it or trying to feel it. And I think both ways are beautiful and both ways are valid. And I think one without the other is an incomplete picture. So I really like to study these different, like the experiential body, the energetic body. And for that, you need poetry, you need metaphor, you need, you need something besides a CAT scan or a a blood test, you know, to discover and to talk about and to share these bigger concepts of what it's like to be in this meat suit and what it's like to be in love and what it's like to, you know, um, move your body and what you're feeling when you do that. And, you know, we need, we need poetry for that. The the CAT scan doesn't do it. It doesn't give it a full
1: picture. Absolutely. I'm curious how your relationship with your own meat suit has changed (laughs) over the course of over 30 years of studying and teaching within these two, or we could argue just one singular field of the energetic and physical body. Yeah. The body is
0: in constant flux. (laughs) There's constant cycles of change. And so as I age, that becomes more obvious. And it becomes a more uh, felt experience than just something intellectual. Like I, I always knew my body would age. <laughs> I always knew my my experience would change. But going through that, it's it's a trip. <laughs> and you know, just recently, you know, my my practice was very physical, and I got great joy. I used to be a dancer when I was younger. Got great joy out of the physicality and the challenge and the aesthetic. And then that wanes a little bit when you start to discover the more subtle aspects of yoga or the more subtle aspects of life. There's a little bit of a putting the physicality maybe aside or or um, honoring something else about yourself. And then just recently, I started dancing again at you know almost fifty. <laughs> I started you know taking dance classes again and. I don't actually know how to talk about it quite yet because it's a bit new, but it's reintroduced me to this physicality, this love of the, a rehonoring of the meat suit and, and the ability and the potential of it, even though it's vastly different than when I was 20, it's still quite sacred. It's still quite powerful, a different.
1: That's so beautiful. I think that that might be a working name for this podcast episode. Actually, is rehonoring the meat suit. Also, super curious, just personally, what kind of dance classes you've been taking again? Yeah, so I started ballet and contemporary. I used to be a um, modern dance uh,
0: modern dancer when I first moved to New York, and so I started retaking some ballet classes here in London and some modern dance classes, um, and just
1: loving it. <laughs> That is amazing and so fun. So pivoting in a a slightly different direction beyond your personal journey, your personal experience. I mentioned this before, but you're also a phenomenal teacher and you've had a lot of years teaching under your belt. So I'm super curious what your observations have been. From a teacher's perspective, just in the way the nervous systems of your students have changed over the years and some of the issues that we're all collectively facing right now, be it in terms of shortened attention span or heightened levels of stress and anxiety, I think you also have a really powerful way that you teach about our relationship with stress, which we can get into in a moment, but I'm, I'm curious what your observations have been just in general, zooming out in the nervous systems of your students. Yeah. I mean,
0: just like what you said, the attention span is different, I think in large part to our technology, which has brought us, of course, amazing ability to talk to one another across the ocean and to have conversations and to reach more people, which is really beautiful and exciting and necessary, I think, for our evolution. And there's a cost to that and a lot of that is our ability to focus and our ability to sit still and to we're bombarded with so much information from so many different sources to be able to discern is something that that I think is is lacking <laughs> or could be strengthened. One of my teachers says uh, yoga is the sharpening of the sword of discernment um, and I think to become discerning, uh, to not believe everything that we think, to not just bounce from event to event or information piece to information piece, to be able to bring in more opinions and to and to see things from many different perspectives. I think all of that is um, we're struggling with that at the moment. Also, because of the pandemic, quite obviously, we're just so darn tired. <laughs> we are burnt out and tired and defaulting to whatever our patterns are because we're too tired to, we don't have the resources internally to change those patterns, right? If you're exhausted, it's easier to go on the default programming than to work with anything different or to change or to grow or to evolve. We're just in survival mode still. So I've seen that in myself and I've seen that in students over the last 3 or 4 or 5 or a decade. It's a challenge and it's it's definitely changed the way I practice myself and and changed the way I that I'm teaching because I just think we need different things now than we did 20 years ago.
1: What is your own practice looking like these days and how has your teaching shifted? What kind of techniques and practices are you guiding your students through now? as opposed to 10 years ago? I think what's been most exciting
0: and most fruitful for myself and and see for my students or hear reported back from my students is the practice of yoga nidra. The practice of deep restoration and meeting yourself on a deeper level. And that practice of yoga nidra translates to sleep of the yogis, but it's not about unconsciousness it's it's it sleep with the seed of awareness right so we're meeting ourselves at this untangling from the physical and the mental and the emotional tension and meeting ourselves at that place of just pure awareness and the side benefit one of the side benefits of that practice is resetting the nervous system is a deep restoration which in and of itself is often enough to reset the balance of our autonomic nervous system, or at least it gets us closer to that. So I think a daily practice of yoga nidra has been um, a really powerful tool uh, uh, for myself and for my students, more so than the physical, to be frank, or more so than even breath work, which I'm a big fan of. And it seems... Sometimes it's hard to convince people because it doesn't look like you're doing much. (laughs) Looks like you're sleeping. Um, And so it's difficult to convince people that that is such a profound practice sometimes because we're in a society that values busyness, values achievement, values growth and potential. And, you know, you, you listen to anything on Instagram or anything, you know, Uh, And they're talking about how to optimize and how to, and those qualities are great. But if you're exhausted and if you are uh, burnt out and if you are stuck, those things become just another thing on your list that you're not going to get to uh, and that you can't reach. So I think it starts often with honoring rest and this is a great way to do it.
1: Yoga Nidra is one of my favorite practices as well, and when I'm explaining it to people, just in case anybody listening right now is unfamiliar with it, I usually will share that it's kind of like taking your nervous system into that state just before you wake up in the morning when you're very receptive and you're walking this fine line between sleep and wakefulness, but your body is typically very relaxed and your mind is not quite fully online. So the subsequent stress and tension that comes from having a brain that's like all day long is not quite there, is not quite present. I also will share that I refer to it as adult nap time for (laughs) adults who are incapable of napping in the middle of the day. I do think that it's even more powerful than just taking a nap and laying down because there is this this intentional training of the nervous system to come to that state of rest and come to that state of ease and you know the more we can intentionally tap into that the easier it becomes for us to consciously shift into at various other points throughout our day something that i've been witnessing in my own students and clients is that the ones who can drop in drop in and they're obsessed. But I also am noticing, especially now post-pandemic, that there is almost this barrier to entry when certain individuals are in such a heightened state of anxiety or stress, laying down on their backs with the intention to be still and quiet can feel even more distressing And I think in those situations, at least the recommendation that I give is to do a little bit of movement first or a little bit of breath work first as a way to coax nervous system into a feeling of enough safety that laying down and and being more still can feel accessible. I think that where you started there of explaining yoga nidra as
0: that kind of hovering in that space. Right before you wake up, that dreamy state. But that state where I'm not yet, I'm not Kristen yet. I'm not a wife. I'm not um, a cat parent. I'm not a yoga teacher. I'm not a um, person with patterns or a person with, you know, strengths and weaknesses and a person with a to do list. I'm just that seed of awareness. I don't have any of those labels yet or there's attributes yet and so i think that that's kind of the power of the practice is it's that reintroduction to that place that doesn't have the struggles or the the to-do list or the labels or the attributes and and that place is a very powerful place to know so that when you are awake when you are moving in through life you have this reference back to that part of you and there's like a, a pause that you can create between you know something happening in the external world and something reactively happening in you or that ability to want to try to catch it and hold it tightly or push it away there's a little bit of um, a relaxation in that when you know yourself to be distinct from those events and i think giving people the permission to tap into these practices In a way that suits them. So if you're working with a lot of trauma or a lot of struggle with being still or laying on your back or, you know, to set yourself up for success, to sit in a chair, you can do these practices. It doesn't have to be on a yoga mat in Bali with beautiful birds singing in the background. And, you know, there's going to be a motorcycle that goes by. There's going to be a cat that wants your attention or a child or, But you just try to set yourself up for success, laying on your side or sitting in a chair or doing a five-minute introduction or a 10-minute introduction and to let it not be perfect. I always like to tell students and remind myself that you don't have to see Krishna or Jesus or Buddha or angels in these practices for them to be powerful. Right? for them to have real physiological change in your body, real spiritual change in your body, you don't need to have you know these angels singing to signal to you that it's worked. The attempt alone at these practices can be powerful physiologically and also just, let's say spiritually, just attempting these practices. Um, and I think that's a powerful thing to remind ourselves of there's no perfect way to practice
1: absolutely i'm curious if you can speak more about the power of the the mere attempt because something that i've witnessed again like in my students and in my clients is that if they don't get to a state that they deem as being powerful or life-changing or have these intense visual hallucinatory experiences that they're doing it wrong or it's not I'm, I'm like doing air quotes right now but it's not working for them and I think when we infuse our our daily rituals and practices with expectation and with so much judgment around what it is or is not supposed to be usually just makes me at least feel a lot worse when I'm attempting to do something. And then I feel defeated by the fact that I don't reach this outcome that I originally expected of myself. And yeah, I would love if you could share a little bit more about the power of the attempt in and of itself.
0: You know, in yoga, they use the word sadhana, sadhana meaning practice. So it's not, it's not a quick fit. You can take certain psychedelics or you can take certain pharmaceuticals or maybe have a near-death experience or something that changes your perception quicker Some for some people and might stay with you for your lifetime. <laughs> these these tools that we're talking about, yoga nidra, meditation, breath work, movement, these are daily ways to dip your toe in the stream of consciousness of awareness of of capital Y yoga. And it's just about the daily interaction with that. And over time, that builds up the remembrance of who you are beyond, you know, all the stuff happening to you. So I think if we can do the best we can to loosen our expectations of how it should come to you. I know when I first started practicing yoga, Even I I get tempted still, like, you know, my teacher sometimes says, you know, he does this like two, three hour practice every day, and you know, wrapped in robes and, you know, with all of the the spiritual garb and my life doesn't look like that. And I know a lot of my students' practices don't look like that. Um, Sometimes it's just doing 10 minutes of movement where I can or one breath. Or one leg's up the wall, you know, in moments in my day where I feel overwhelmed. So it's just this practice of returning back to yourself. And over time, it's not a quick fix, but over time it it builds. I've heard like if you keep money in the bank, <laughs> it accrues interest. I, I have not tested that theory out, but I've heard from other people. And so it's kind of like that. You're putting money in the bank over time these little moments add up to this remembrance of
1: who you are. For me, that's powerful enough. Likewise, on a slightly different note, I know the big picture theme of this teaching today is that we need parasympathetic right now, that we're we're kind of living in a culture that is chronically deprived of access to more parasympathetic states of nervous system innervation. And if you're listening right now and you have no idea what the hell that means, what we could say is accessing the body's relaxation response as opposed to fight, flight, freeze, fawn, <laughs> stress response, uh, which we could also call the, the sympathetic nervous system state of innervation. And one of the things that I learned from you actually that has been such a a mind-bending teaching for me is reassessing my relationship with stress and that stress is not just this inherently black or white thing that it's not all bad, but that stress is actually something that compels us to grow and become stronger and become more resilient. And I, I think, To quote you in one of your previous trainings, which, by the way, I have taken Kristen's nervous system online training and I can't recommend it enough. If you're listening and you're ever curious about learning more with Kristen, we'll just put a little shameless plug in. It's one of the best trainings I've ever taken in my life. But I think to quote you in one of those trainings, you said something to the effect of, you know, we have to stress our bones in order to build greater bone density. And Stressing our muscles is the thing that causes them to get stronger as well. And so I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to how creating nervous system stress or tapping into sympathetic states may be beneficial at times and potentially, if we're using that word discernment, how to discern when it's too much. I think it's it's common that we hear messaging in the yoga world or in the, um,
0: holistic kind of health realms or just really in, in media right now, we hear quite a lot about stress is evil. Stress is what's causing disease or inflammation or stress is uh, something that we're looking to eliminate or to stop or to get rid of. And I kind of think like, yeah, no, good luck to you. First of all, <laughs> you're trying to get rid of all of stress in your life and in in this world that we find ourselves in. It's a really tough journey you're on if you're looking to get rid of stress. Stress is inherent, right, in life, in our experience, in this realm of duality. We have good and bad. We have, you know, joy and despair. We have this oscillation between the two, which causes discomfort and stress, and you know, it jostles us, right? It's an inherent part of how we move through the world, the inherent part of being human. And if you look at stress in an anatomy definition, they have that word stress, and it's not a negative. It's actually, like you said, how we evolve and grow, the stress on our bones or muscles and on our nervous system is how we learn, evolve, grow, and it's in our DNA. It's in ourselves, in our own nervous system, when we talk about the autonomic nervous system, that sympathetic and parasympathetic parts of us, we are meant to actually be on sympathetic about half of our day. We're supposed to oscillate this duality. We're supposed to oscillate between sympathetic activation and parasympathetic activation. And I think sometimes when our languaging is sympathetic equating to fight or flight, and parasympathetic equating to rest and digest, which is what we all learn when we, we look at you know the nervous system. It gives us a false idea, again, that fight or flight, sympathetic activation is something that we shouldn't allow. It's not the good part of us. The good part of us is relaxation or rest. We're made for both. We're made to have both. And instead of calling it I like to relabel the sympathetic nervous system as our engagement systems rather than fight or flight. If you turn it up to 10, yeah, we can fight a tiger, flee from a tiger. We get all the good juice in our body that allows a lot of these physiological changes to happen that we can fight or flee or what have you. But just having this conversation now and maybe even listening for those listening to be listening and engaging in that conversation We need to be unsympathetic. We need to have the ability to listen, to engage, to look at each other, to learn, to formulate questions, to reach back in the crevice of our mind to something else we heard and and kind of put that up to this conversation and extract the nuggets from it or what's going to be valuable. We need to be engaged, to do our jobs, to be parents, to move through the world, right? The engagement part of us is equally important as the rest repair digest part of us. Equally valuable. Just so happens that we tend to overactivate or overvalue um, one more than the other. I think that the practices, a lot of the practices, the breathwork practices, the asana practices of yoga, which is just the language that I speak, uh, the place that I come from, those practices are actually trying to change our relationship to our own sympathetic. Many of them are actually stimulating a sympathetic nervous system response. But hopefully you're doing it in a way that you're in this little safe container of your own mat or your own yoga room or your own practice that you start to repattern your hyperreactivity to that stress response. So every time you have a stressor in your day, which is going to happen 100 times, 200 times, 500 times in your day, instead of revving it up to 10 as if a tiger's coming after you, you have the ability to go pause, see it as somehow distinct from you. You have that remembrance of who you are, distinct from it to go mm-hmm what's the reality of the situation? Let's see, how is it changing my breath? How is it changing my posture? What is happening in my mind right now? You have that little half second pause that you can choose differently. You can choose to not, you know, sometimes you need anger. It's, it's not a bad response, but you can choose. Is that necessary in this moment? Or is this just your boss wanted you to write one email and it's five o'clock and you want to go home and okay it's not I don't need to like throw the computer across the room or I don't need to swallow it and then yell at my kids later I can take a deep breath and I can see this for what it is actually it only take me a minute no problem and move on with your day not hold it uh, all night long or not hold it 10 years long you move through it a little bit more elegantly a little bit more efficiently and I think that's really the power of these practices to reframe our relationship to stress, uh, to see it for what it is an inherent part of us and a part we can get more masterful of.
1: What I want to highlight in what you just said is that, you know, awareness is almost like the secret sauce. It's the thing that discernment awareness is the thing that gives us the ability to choose differently. Rather than just running on autopilot, without it, we are essentially the victims to whatever our previous patterning and programming is. That's something that you had mentioned at the beginning of our time together on this episode as well. You know, when we're really tired, we don't have the opportunity to put the resources and the energy and attention into choosing differently. And When we lack self-awareness, when we lack discernment, we are also robbed of that opportunity to choose. And for me, that's been one of the biggest gifts of mindfulness and meditative practices, the ability to create enough space between the part of me that is having an emotional reaction and the part of me that's observing that reaction so that I can actually choose how I want to be in the world how I want to show up in my relationships, including and especially in the relationship that I have with myself, and not just be dragged around by the myriad of issues that I've (laughs) carried throughout the course of my life. I know we're getting close to the end of our time together today, but I don't know if I ever shared this with you personally, but I do know that a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this and a lot of the people in My audience over on social media platforms know that for me, delving into mindfulness and meditative practices 10 years ago when I began that teacher training is actually the thing that enabled me to pull myself out of a really long time battle with anxiety and depression and learning from you and learning about the incredible power that each one of us has to facilitate change when we can foster enough self-awareness and discernment. It really did dramatically change my life and has made it such an infinitely more pleasant experience for me being in this meat suit with all of the shit and all of the programming and all of the, and all of the patterns and stuff that I carry. But it really has changed my life tremendously and I, I can't thank you enough for that. These practices are really, they're really
0: powerful, and it's a joy to share them. and uh, And I'm so lucky to have found them and to have have had really great teachers. I think we share a couple of those teachers, and I feel very lucky to have come across these practices. Because, to be honest, I don't know where. <laughs> well, I do know where
1: I would be without them, and it ain't good, you yeah. <laughs> know. Maybe the autopsy of dead animals would have gone down an even darker. It <laughs> got a different way, <laughs> like path. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, especially I
0: I think I saw it over the last you know a few years with the pandemic. Obviously, this was a extremely challenging time for all of us, most of us, and, and in different ways. And I don't know what I personally would have done if I didn't have the resources of these practices it wasn't an easy road but I think it would have been far more tumultuous so so I'm, I'm I'm thankful for my teachers that have shared them with me
1: likewise one of them being you and I would love to close out our time together just by asking you where listeners of course all this information is going to be in the show notes So if you're listening right now, go to the show notes. You will have exact links to all of this information. But where is the best place for people to learn more about what you're doing and what you're offering right now? Well, just thank you. Thank you for giving
0: me the opportunity to see your face. I know this podcast is probably just audio, but just to be able to see your face and to to see how you're doing. and Thank you for having me and being able to talk about the nervous system is my great nerdy pleasure. So um, (laughs) thank you for giving me that opportunity. And if anyone is interested and wants to look a little bit deeper into the nervous system, uh, they can go to my website, which is just my name, kristinleal.com. And it has all of my live events or online courses. I'm also, depending on when this comes out, there's a Let's go to Vegas workshop talking about the Vegas nerve, which is April 22nd. But the recording will also be available if you can't join us live. And for those that want to do the online nervous system course, I have a 20 hour online meta anatomy of the nervous system. I'm happy to give your listeners uh, 20% off if you enter in the code TALK NERDY to me. That's going to be available to your listeners if they want to do that course. Um, and I also have a book called Meta Anatomy that has some information on the meat suit, on the nervous system, um, and also on the energetic and therapeutic maps of the body. So if anyone wants to get nerdy with me, there it is.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Kristen. I'll probably be at your Vegas Nerve Workshop and. Yeah, again, I can't recommend the, the Nervous System course enough, and thank you so much for your generous discount. I Seriously, if you're listening, you need to take that course and anything else that you can take with Kristen. I'll also mention that I, I was required to read her book, Meta Anatomy, as a requisite for the teacher training program that I took 10 years ago. And it was the most enjoyable, delightful, required reading that I've ever had to do. I, <laughs> At this point in my life, it's honestly the kind of reading that I do for pleasure. And so I'll just give the little disclaimer that the level of poeticism that Kristen brought to this episode is the same way that she writes. So this is not just going to be a book that you're sitting through and kind of like beating your head against the pages trying to figure out what anything means. (laughs) She does a really masterful job making it easy to understand and relevant and relatable. And I know that that's probably what listeners got from the podcast today as well. So thank you so much, Kristen. It's been such a joy and I so appreciate you taking the time to talk nerdy to me.
0: I appreciate you. Thank you.
1: If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashtin for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. Each episode that you share and tag me in will lead to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast baby is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just wanna help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I wanna thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night I can't even tell you how many times when I've been freaking out about this podcast Adam you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius I am so so grateful to have you in my life and I love you tremendously